Good afternoon, everybody. This is Matt Bieber with the New Mexico Department of Health. Uh, we're here with our regular uh, COVID-19 and vaccine update. Um, as usual, we have uh, Dr. David Scrace, Dr. Laura Patajon, and Dr. Christine Ross with us today, uh, the Secretary, Deputy Secretary, and State Epidemiologist for the New Mexico Department of Health. And as usual, we will go through a series of presentations from each of them, followed by Q&A. And we look forward to, to that conversation. So with that, I'll turn it over to our principals. And uh, once again, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we're very glad to have you here again today. We, uh, today we have 1,444 cases. I know if you're like me, you're a little disappointed. Uh, yesterday we were in triple digits. Now we're back up in quadruple. Uh, a new record high of people in the hospital. And we're going to talk about that at length and have a special appearance from one of our hospital leaders today. And then, unfortunately, 15 deaths. Every death is a tragic event. And uh, we are, uh, you know, we're, our hearts go out to families and others who, you know, friends of these who've died uh, from COVID from this very, very infectious virus. Uh, probably worth reflecting on the fact that now over 15.5% of New Mexicans have had a documented test positive for coronavirus uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and our hospitalization overall is running about 6.4% of cases. And, uh, de and depending on which numbers you look at, our death rate uh, from COVID, the percent of what we call the case fatality rate, the percent of people who die is about uh, 1.67%. So we'll, uh, I'm gonna turn it over now to Laura Parahone, who's gonna walk us through vaccines. Uh, uh, Christine Ross will uh, give us an update on epidemiology issues related to um, both the United States and New Mexico and the Omicron variant. And then I'll finish up with an update on vaccine breakthrough, hospitalizations, and other uh, and treatments. So with that, uh, Dr. Barron or Laura, I'm gonna turn it over to you, thank you. Thank you so much, David. So hello everybody. Um, thanks so much for being here again today um, for the New Mexico COVID-19 vaccination rate update. Um, good job, everybody. There's 62.8% of all New Mexicans who are fully vaccinated right now, 74.8 over the age of 18, 55.9 between 12 and 17 years of age, and 5 to 2% of New Mexicans 5 to 11 years of age. Um, for the partially vaccinated, so uh, we have 73.9% of all New Mexicans, 86.6% um, of New Mexicans 18 and over, 65% of New Mexicans 12 to 17, and 19.5% of New Mexicans 5 to 11-year-olds. So great job, everybody. Um, over 400,000 people received a booster dose. And if you can see on the right-hand side here, the gray shows uh, the seven-day moving average for the whole United States, but then the red shows New Mexico. So you can see that we're tracking very similarly to the rest of the United States. Um, so five to 11-year-olds year out there, you guys are doing great and thanks for getting vaccinated. 
This is a slide that shows the 12 to 15 year old doses against the five to 11 year old doses. So you can see that actually the kids five to 11 year olds are catching up to a similar time period as the 12 to 15 year olds. So that's, that's really great. And we encourage five to 11 year olds to continue getting vaccinated. Um, one of the things we've found that, uh, that they're studying is that COVID-19 vaccine is so safe and effective for kids. I know, once again, as a parent, we're always worried about our kids' vaccinations, but it's 91% effective against COVID-19, and this is based on extensive studies and one of the most intensive safety monitoring programs in the whole U.S. history. Um, just for a little um, example of all the types of studies they've done, the first studies they do are small studies that say, is it safe? What dose is best? Then they look at expanded safety studies. They enroll hundreds of people always asking, is it safe? Is it effective? And then phase three, they enroll thousands more people to see if the vaccine works. And then um, looking at large enough groups to actually see if there's any side effects and then continued monitoring through the VAERS program, which is a system that tracks and monitors side effects of the vaccine. So um, just you know, for parents out there, just know that it's so well studied. It's a third of the adult dose. Um, there's two doses three weeks apart to be fully protected. One dose isn't enough. And just remember there's much milder side effects um, in children um, than in actually older children or adults. And so that's great. Um, vaccine is free and at no cost to you. Just remember that it doesn't require insurance. It doesn't require ID. So people who are worried about like, oh, it's gonna cost me something, they may charge your insurance, but they're not gonna charge you. Um, vaccination also makes it much less likely for children to get sick from COVID. Our data shows that actually children who are unvaccinated have a 10 times more likelihood of getting hospitalized than children who have been vaccinated. Um, vaccines also will help our children to participate in school and life events more safely. It's just so sad, right? Over the past year, I know many of us who have kids have felt like COVID-19 really robbed our children of many important experiences like graduation. My kid didn't even go to his high school graduation, you know, it was on Zoom. Um, playing sports or being able to go to school in person, it'll keep our kids safe. And the best way we can keep on having our kids having these experiences to get them vaccinated. Um, okay, so everybody, thank you so much for getting your booster doses too. Um, I know that uh, David and Christine are going to talk more Omicron and hospitals in the in the next slides, but you know we really do need to keep on getting boosted, um, and it's picking up after the holiday, so keep on going out there and getting boosted. And uh, we know that um, you know just a little reminder that New Mexicans 18 and over, everybody is eligible for a booster right now. So remember Pfizer and Moderna six months after your second dose, J and J two months after your first dose, and it's it, you can mix and match if you like, and you can get flu vaccine or other vaccines at the same time as your COVID vaccine. I know that there are some of you out there who have been having trouble getting booster appointments. And so our team at the DOH and working with our partners throughout the state are trying to increase 
our booster dose availability. So thank you for your patience. Uh, we've in recently increased booster doses in Albuquerque and the Santa Fe area, and we actually have some excess capacity in the next week. So um, the expo in New Mexico and Albuquerque at the Dairy Barn is daily. Um, fairgrounds, we're having a big event here in Santa Fe on December 11th. Buffalo's Thunder on the 15th, and then also check your local pharmacies. And you can visit vaccinesnewmexico.org or vaccines.gov to sign up for an appointment. And then um, also here's some other places with excess um, booster dose clinics. There's a lot of booster dose clinics in Northern New Mexico with excess, excess capacity and also in Southern New Mexico with excess capacity. So uh, please be patient. Definitely go get your booster doses. Uh, we're trying to increase capacity every week. Um, one of the things we've also done is reached out to FEMA. Um, they're returning to New Mexico to help administer vaccines. So we really thank National Guard. They've been helping us out so much. And we're adding FEMA with these buses. So this is pretty cool. Uh, you can see on the right-hand side, there's going to be four mobile uh, vaccine buses that will be able to get to places where you want to ask for. So um, we've asked them to come and help us out. So they'll be coming out here in the next few weeks. Um, we just thank so many of you providers reach back out to us this past week. And thank you for helping offer how to keep on helping us administer booster doses. Once again, if you're a vaccine provider and you can have a little bit more space in your, in your set, please um, help us out in Santa Fe, Española, and Albuquerque. If you're not a provider yet, please consider becoming one and signing up at TakeCareNewMexico.org. You guys are our trusted people. Uh, people trust you guys as providers. Share the importance of boosters with your patients um, to address this waning immunity and new variants that are coming up. And then emphasize that uh, to your patients that you don't need insurance and that the vaccine is free. So thank you for doing that, everybody. Um, and it's not just providers who need, um, need, we need your help from. We also need help from all of you in communities and community organizations. People trust you too to help promote the vaccine and help save lives. Our hospitals are so full as you're finding out. Um, Omicron is already in the US and there's unknowns about the variant. If you're a community organization, serving the community as a service provider, please continue to share information about how to prevent the spread of COVID. Be that listening ear, help them get information that people need to, to make that choice to get vaccinated if they can. And then um, if you wanna host a vaccine event, you can request an event at getvaxnewmexico.com. Um, those mobile teams will help us out a lot and get events to you. And once again, letting people know it's free and no cost to you, you don't need ID um, and or insurance, just uh, yeah, wanna lift as many barriers as we can to getting the vaccine. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me here again today. And now I'm gonna turn it over to my amazing colleague, uh, Dr. Christine Ross. And if, before you do, if I may just jump in and add quickly that um, we have confirmed that this broadcast is, is up and running on the New Mexico Department of Health, HSD, excuse me, New Mexico Human Services Department Facebook page, the link for which is in the chat. So if you didn't see the chat, please take a look and click there to, to follow the broadcast live. All right, uh, Dr. Ross, back to you. Okay, Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very uh, happy to be here today to talk a little bit about uh, COVID-19 epidemiology. Uh, unfortunately, 
many aspects of our lives continue to be heavily impacted by the global COVID-19 pandemic. And as of December 5th, uh, 2021, there was nearly 265 million confirmed cases and over 5.2 million deaths have been reported to the World Health Organization. Um, the World Health Organization regions reporting the highest weekly case incidence continues to be the European region, which we've been reporting out over the past several weeks, and also the region of the Americas. And that's driven by activity here at home in the United States. Uh, so what's happening in the US? And this is what uh, this slide is uh, talking about. So the US began to see a surge of COVID-19 activity in July um, when uh, the Delta variant was introduced and then quickly became the dominant variant over a relatively short amount of time. Uh, this slide should be familiar to, to you all. This is from the CDC COVID tracker. Uh, the CDC uses the surveillance data uh, that we share with them from the states, including New Mexico, all of the jurisdictions, tribes, nations, this all rolls up into what you see on the CDC COVID tracker. So again, this includes our data. The map on the left shows uh, newly reported cases over the past seven days um, per 100,000 population. The darker colors are depicting higher level uh, case rates or disease activity, and you see New Mexico's in that red box. Um, one thing uh, important to recall is that, you know, there has been um, heterogeneity or there's many differences when, when you uh, look over uh, the period of time from July moving forward. Some of the states in, in the southern part of the United States were hit very hard early on in the summer months, and now they're seeing low level of activity, and that's this lighter sort of green color there that you see along the southern part of the United States. But now areas in the upper Midwest, uh, the Northeast, and, and, and others, including the Four Corners, uh, are seeing an increase in activity and even some areas are surging like we are experiencing here in New Mexico. And then that graph on the right also is one that we tend to show each week. And this is the seven day moving average of new cases. Um, and again, that red line uh, is showing you that seven day moving average over time. And you can see that the United States had a really nice downward trend uh, for some time. Uh, we hit uh, somewhat of a plateau and now we are uh, clearly um, going in the wrong direction as a nation. Uh, so we have seen a 26.9% increase in new cases in the U.S. Uh, per the seven-day moving average um, as compared to the week prior. Um, we're not going to show this uh, today, but also hospitalizations and deaths have also increased nationally um, over the past week. So now moving to New Mexico data, next slide. Uh, so this is another one that you're familiar with. This is our epi curve, or it's a graph uh, which plots the number of uh, cases uh, over time. The seven-day moving average is that black dotted line. And why we show this is this graph provides situational awareness regarding disease activity in our state. So it's constructed by reporting from laboratories, hospitals, clinics, healthcare providers uh, to us here at the state. And so what you see is we are experiencing a high uh, case rate 
uh, high and sustained over uh, quite a period of time here since this surge began uh, in July. And what we are seeing is a really significant impact on our healthcare system, um, which will be discussed uh, a little bit later. So next slide. And then also for additional situational awareness, we wanted to share the epi curve uh, for each of the five health regions in the state. So these are the next uh, few slides. And the, the first being the metro region. And uh, again, the black dotted line is the seven day moving average. Uh, you see in the middle of the slide, a big mountain, uh, which depicts uh, last winter's uh, surge in activity um, for some time over the summer period, um, we had a low level of activity. And again, when the highly transmissible uh, Delta variant uh, became dominant uh, here in New Mexico, as it did across the United States, we began to see the surge in activity. And you can see that we're sitting at a very high um, case rate here in the metro region uh, currently. Uh, next slide. This is the Northeast region. Again, uh, the um, the scales have to be changed a bit because of lower uh, or a smaller population size. And then you see a sort of you see a lower level uh, case rates, excuse me. Um, and so here again, the seven day moving average depicts a high level of uh, activity uh, in the northeast region, um, which uh, is rivaling uh, what they saw uh, last winter, but not not uh, quite as high uh, as that period of time. Uh, next slide. And again, this is the Northwest, an area that has been particularly hard hit um, with a very um, steep, rapid uh, rise in incidence of new cases depicted by that seven-day moving average, which is the black dotted line. And this indeed, we are seeing um, numbers uh, very similar as was seen uh, in the winter uh, of 2020. Uh, we do see a decrease here in the seven-day moving average. Uh, still remains quite elevated, but we're hoping to see that um, uh, continue to go the right direction. And the next few slides are the Southeast region, uh, which will be followed by the Southwest. Again, the South Southeast, a little bit different um, pattern, uh, saw a really rapid increase in incidence, uh, which peaked uh, uh, quickly uh, as compared to other regions and then began to trend downward and was sitting at a plateau for some time. It looks like it could be uh, trending the wrong direction. And then lastly, for the regional slides, this is the Southwest, also very concerning, um, uh, very similar uh, rates as we're seeing in um, 2020, and a very high uh, case rate as depicted by that black dotted line. Uh, the the take-home message that we're seeing is high levels of community transmission uh, across the state, and I believe that's depicted in the next slide. Let's go ahead and show that. Yes. So this is um, uh, one of our publicly available um, uh, reports that, that are uh, posted online along with many other EPI reports. So this is called the level of community transmission, um, where we've mirrored what CDC has done, where they, compi they combine two metrics, one being uh, the, the uh, case rate per 100,000 uh, persons, 
and then also test percent positivity. So what you see is data at the county level. Uh, so we, we drill down farther from the state down to the health region, down to the county region, and here, or county level, excuse me, and you can see, again, across the entire state, we have very high levels of, um, of uh, disease transmission. And um, let's go ahead and move to the next slide because I know we have a lot of slides to show today. Um, so Omicron, we, we did talk a little bit about this last week. So we received news about this new variant of concern over the, the Thanksgiving weekend. It was very unwelcome news. Uh, so this uh, is a new variant of concern, depict, uh, which was designated such uh, by the World Health Organization on November 26, 2021. Uh, this was followed by um, uh, a body of experts in the United States who have also deemed it a variant of concern. So we now have two variants of concern that we are monitoring in the United States. Of course, the first, uh, the one we are grappling with now is the, is the Delta variant. Um, this new variant has now been detected in 20 states as of um, today. Um, I, I believe that is meant to say the 8th. Um, and this continues to uh, rapidly change as new states um, are able to detect the variant. Uh, it has not been identified in New Mexico as of uh, yet. We expect that it will be, uh, so we will not be surprised once, once we see this variant. So why did the World Health Organization and uh, CDC deem this a variant of concern? And I just really want to quickly say, to be deemed a variant of concern, you have to have some characteristics, certain characteristics, and fall into um, one of these buckets. Uh, either uh, the variant is more transmissible than the original uh, strain, uh, it has the ability to cause uh, a more severe disease, it has a heightened ability to evade um, uh, protection, uh, it's less vulnerable to existing treatments, uh, or it compromises our existing uh, diagnostics. So why this was deemed a variant of concern so quickly uh, was because uh, one major region is, reason was that genomic uh, fingerprint of this virus looks very different from uh, prior variants. It has a very high number of mutations, and many of those mutations are sitting right on the spike protein, which is a really important part of the virus, which allows it to enter, allows it to attach, enter, and infect human cells. So over 50 mutations, and again, many of them on this really important part of the virus. There was also other evidence out of South Africa, uh, which was um, uh, worrisome about uh, its uh, probable of probable characteristic of being more uh, transmissible than um, the original or historical uh, strains. Um, so we are on high alert. We remain on high alert uh, for this variant. We're working closely with CDC. Uh, we do not have um, um, complete information at this point in time. So we do want you all to be aware uh, that this is this is something to um, uh, remain uh, alert about. And we have we don't have any reason to believe that the vaccine will not remain will not allow you to remain highly protective against serious illness uh, and disease death. So. 
our best uh, tool in the toolbox remains uh, vaccination. Again, as new uh, information emerges about this uh, variant, we will share it as soon as we have it. So last slide for me, um, even though, uh, next slide please, uh, Omicron is something to be very uh, um, concerned about, alert about, uh, and really a wake-up call to the globe about the need to ensure um, equitable access to vaccination around the globe. Um, what are we dealing with now? It remains uh, uh, to be Delta. Uh, so this is uh, on the left-hand side is a um, graph out of the uh, variant of concern report, also a publicly available report that you can find online. And you can see this gold color here. Uh, basically what this is showing you that uh, out of the sequences um, or out of the samples that we've uh, sequenced, uh, nearly 99.9% .9 of them are Delta. And so this is still what we are dealing with here in New Mexico and still uh, what we are, are grappling with across the uh, United States. And I think I'll pause there. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about uh, how to manage um, uh, what we are, are seeing now in the state. So I think I'll turn this over to uh, Secretary Scrace or David, over to you. Thank you very much, Director Dr. Ross, uh, Christine, for that uh, overview. I'm gonna pick up a little bit uh, from where you left off, talk a little bit about vaccine breakthrough cases today. Um, as you know, we have these updated reports every week online. I, I, I went through yesterday, I think there's over 1600 data points in uh, each of these reports, new data points that is every week. Um, and so again, we're still seeing uh, some vaccine breakthrough cases, about one fourth of all our cases are in people who've been previously vaccinated, but three quarters of those who have not. Hospitalizations, 81% in those who have not been vaccinated. 18.5% of those who have. And then lastly, deaths, 85.7%, 86% in those who are unvaccinated, 14% in those who are. Also, uh, we have determined that if you had your primary series vaccine uh, for uh, Pfizer or Moderna more than six months ago, that would be June 1st, then your risk of having a breakthrough case right now is four times higher and those vaccinated subsequently, which is why we're making a, such a big deal about getting a booster dose. So while we're on that subject, Pfizer just released a press release. And I've said many times that we don't like using press releases for data, and we have not seen any of their data, but they're saying that in, in the case of Omicron, uh, three doses of the Pfizer vaccine provide 25 times as much protection it's just two doses. And so if you're worried about uh, this new variant that will be here probably like this week, early next week, recall that when we do the sequencing, there's about a two week delay, 10 days delay. So when we identify our first case, if you're worried about that, if you're worried about the new variant, this would be great motivation, motivation to go out and get a booster today. Okay, Brianna, next slide, please. Um, hospitalizations. Uh, our hospitals in, are in a really grave situation. And I've been saying this every week and I get the sense that folks, it's just not connecting anymore that even when I say things like if 
people on this call or streaming this on Facebook had a heart attack that, and you call 911, that it might take a really, really long time for an ambulance to even arrive. And once that ambulance arrived and they took you to an emergency room, you may spend days in the emergency room rather than being transferred to, for example, an intensive care unit, if that was appropriate. And that really worries me as a physician, uh, thinking about how crowded our hospitals are. We have a new, uh, a current um, this year record for hospitalization, 666, 667. And we also have, uh, you know, an awful lot of people in our hospitals. And you'll hear about that in a little bit from our special guest who are, you know, seriously ill from delayed care that they didn't get uh, the regular care they needed uh, during the first part of the pandemic. Next slide, please. Uh, this is the number of patients in the hospital. You can see we're creeping back up. I guess maybe one day, uh, January 1st, we had a slightly higher number. So this might be the second highest day, but you can see we're way up there. And in January last year, we didn't have all these delayed care, seriously ill people like we do today. Next slide, please. The uh, number of open beds, uh, very, very seriously low. Um, you know, total ICU beds available yesterday afternoon, 13. I know people think, well, that's not too bad. We have 13 beds, but those beds were probably filled up by people sitting in emergency rooms uh, within an hour or two of when we did that report. So, uh, or certainly by the evening. So we are very, very tight on beds. Next slide, please. Uh, you know, the predictions, the modeling we're doing, this one's from Presbyterian shows that hospital uh, bed days will either be steady or go up a, a little bit more. Uh, and uh, Brianna, while we're doing this, if you could check and make sure this is the most recent slide, uh, that would be great. But we're not seeing any downturn and that's what is most important. Next slide, please. Uh, here's what I mentioned earlier, emergency departments statewide, seeing the highest number of patients waiting for a hospital bed than we have all year. And uh, this one goes just through, uh, it looks like September 30th. Um, and so we have a little bit more current data, but yesterday I was meeting with leaders from several hospitals and two of our hospitals in Albuquerque, one had 65 people waiting in the emergency room for quite some time to get a hospital bed, another 90 people waiting. And, and you know, you don't have to understand or have run a hospital to know that if you have that many people taking up emergency room beds, you're not able to see people in the emergency room and come in with emergencies and the system just almost grinds to a halt. So we do not want anyone to delay care, but please check with your provider before going to the emergency room. Uh, for example, if you have crushing chest pain and you've taken your aspirin and you're calling 911, you know, it's going down your arm, it's going into your jaw, you're probably having a heart attack and you need an ambulance and you need to call 911. But, you know, if your hand hurts, just to pick a couple examples of people who've called ambulances in the last week, or your knee uh, is a little red or your uh, one or both of your legs are swollen a little bit, please, please don't call an ambulance. Please try to arrange care in the lowest acuity setting 
you can. Maybe your doctor's office, please consider urgent care. Again, not for a heart attack or a stroke, but consider going to urgent care for more minor ailments. We're having a lot of problems right now with ambulances coming to homes of people because they've been called to pick up people who may not even need a trip to the hospital at all. And so we're just asking all of you in the public to think about it, try to reach your provider first before making that decision to call 911. And, and especially, and specifically, actually, if it's for a relatively minor uh, illness, not a heart attack, not a stroke, not bleeding, uh, things like that, not trauma. Uh, you know, if you fall off your roof and have severe pain in your back, you should call 911. If you wake up this morning, like I do every morning, and your back is a little stiff, you don't need to call 911. Next slide, please. Uh, just a reminder what we're doing to get help out to hospitals. The state has contracted and brought in 227 uh, folks, distributed all throughout the state. Most of these are nurses, but we also have respiratory therapists, some doctors, some other sorts of healthcare workers, uh, nurse, uh, clinical nurse assistants, and folks like that in different places. Uh, and then you can see the federal government has brought in 73 people, all of whom are stationed in Farmington. This week, we're putting out a request for another 100 nurses, have put that out already, and probably the following week, uh, a request for another 100. Governor asking us to get as many nurses as we can, because as you've known, if you've been listening to these press conferences, that's been our major problem since the very beginning of uh, the Delta surge. Next slide, please. Uh, also the state, and this is a, a little bit boring if you're not an insurance company or a nursing home, uh, but uh, between Russ Toll, the superintendent of insurance, Katrina Hotram, the uh, um, cabinet secretary for aging and long-term services department, myself, uh, three different orders have gone out to actually do everything we possibly can to stop any sort of any sort of authorization process or anything that would slow down moving patients from a hospital bed to a nursing home bed. And, and uh, our hospitals are way, way over full. We need to not only do everything we can to make sure the right people are coming in, but to move people out as quickly as possible. And this was a request from our delivery systems to try to help expedite it. And we've had great cooperation amongst departments and with the superintendent of insurance. And all three of these documents should be available on the DOH website for those of you who are interested. Uh, next slide. And now I have a guest with me today, uh, Michael Rick Richards. I, I have a sense of frustration that as I talk more and more about how bad our hospitals have it, uh, that people are listening less and less. Uh, I was in a meeting the other day uh, we're in protest. This was inside someplace. We're in protest. A whole bunch of people just took off their masks at this indoor meeting. And, you know, when I see that happening, the first thing I think about is what our folks who have been working in our hospitals during the course of the pandemic have gone through and how those sort of acts of what I I'm sure the people doing it think it's just rational civil disobedience, but it really does put everyone in the room at risk and increases people's chances of being hospitalized. And, and Michael was at our, uh, I remember my, Dr. Richard started the mat uh, with me and headed it up for three or four months. And uh, he has a lot of other jobs right now, 
but he was talking at the uh, modeling team yesterday, talked about it was, what it was like at UNM. And I asked if he could join us and sort of just so you could hear it from him, uh, Dr. Richards. So thank you, Secretary Scrace. And um, there may be another slide that I can um, share with the group today. And so um, we, we are experiencing record high volumes of patient census in the hospitals. And you can see by this graph that I'm showing, this is a part of our delivery system at the university. This is UNM Hospital. And you can see that in April of 20, that we had that dip um, when we were earlier in the COVID response and focused on um, essential care. But, um, but uh, and, and then the, the rest of the state, as you showed just a few minutes ago, did have some decline in overall cases uh, several months back. But when we look at, at UNMH in particular, you see that the number of patients seeking care and the overall adult census has continued to grow consistently since that time in April in 2020. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've hit record numbers of adult census um, uh, at UNMH. This morning, our, um, our, our, our capacity was at 156% of our normal licensed operating capacity for the adult uh, beds, and we were at 126% of our normal ICU capacity. So, I mean, this is an, an, an extraordinary number of patients, and, and as you can see, it's been consistent. Um, this has forced us to focus on essential healthcare services. In terms of our call center, we're focused on ensuring that we're delivering care for level one trauma patients, for acute uh, heart attack patients, stroke patients. But uh, many of the transfers that we would normally accept under other operating conditions, we're not able to accept right now because of the very, very high volume. And as you pointed out, emergency departments, uh, just like ours, extremely busy right now and very full. Um, and we can have periods where, you know, we would have as many patients admitted in the emergency department as we would normally have as regular patients in the emergency department. So this week, as a result of the high volume, we've continued to advance our disaster response plan, um, which involves us uh, changing our surgery schedule. So we've moved to the level now where we're um, doing surgeries on patients that require surgery within two weeks. And for patients that can wait longer than two weeks, we're postponing their care. And these really are for the patients that, that would require hospital admissions. Um, we're also redeploying or reassigning many of our providers within the delivery system to be able to provide care. So for example, assigning some of those surgeons and anesthesiologists to help provide care in some of the other areas of the hospital since they're not able to do those surgeries and those are providers that are very capable of taking care of high complex patients. But we're also doing the same thing with, with our um, uh, residents and house officers. And so temporarily reassigning them to help manage the very, very high volume of patients. At this moment, we're not making significant changes in our outpatient delivery. Um, system, um, but we are continuing to monitor that every day, um, encouraging the use of telemedicine visits, but being prepared to, again, shift some of that workforce into helping take care of the very high number of patients which are in the hospitals. I mean, this creates a really difficult patient experience. These long waits um, are difficult, and um, we understand that that's not what 
individuals are used to. Um, and you had mentioned that long waits in the emergency department, and those uh, can be waits that either to be seen initially. Um, we do screening exams as soon as people arrive, but then you know the definitive care can be significantly delayed because of the number of patients that are being taken care of. And then once admitted, patients sometimes stay in the emergency department for a very long period of time waiting for a bed to become available. Um, we also know that that patient experience is very trying. And one of the things I would also like to kind of communicate that we're asking is that, that you know, that individuals know that, that those stressful events are creating a more stressful environment for our healthcare providers. And we're seeing, you know, more difficult and more frequent um, uh, situations where, you know, patients or family members uh, contribute to creating a difficult environment because of their frustrations and the long waits. And that those are things that, that we're just asking individuals to, to say, you know, please be patient. We wanna make sure that individuals who are getting care, who need the care are gonna get the care, but knowing that, that, that it's gonna be under different circumstances. And we still want people who need healthcare to seek it, you know, um, you know, especially the time sensitive care. Um, but, um, but as you pointed out, you know, um, uh, things that can be taken care of in other venues or uh, appropriately delayed without creating any risk or harm, you know, we advocate for that right now. And then as you've kind of talked about, probably the single most important thing that we can do at this point is to ensure that, that we bring this demand down through, you know, ensuring that we get as many people vaccinated and get the boosters out there so that we're having less hospital admissions. Although I will say that, that you know, this is, as you pointed out also, this is not just about COVID patients, you know, the, um, that, that this volume impacts everyone who is seeking care in a hospital. Thank you, Secretary Scrace. Thank you very much, Dr. Richards. Uh, we'd love to have you stay, on, stay around for Q&A, but I think it's obvious to um, every all of our viewers that the situation being what it is, uh, you've been very generous with your time and you need to go back and manage uh, the biggest challenge UNM has ever faced in your hospital system. So thank you very much. And uh, uh, we look forward to having you back with an update when things are better. Thank you, sir. All right, uh, let's move on, Brianna. A few more slides. Uh, deaths, uh, you know, have plateaued still. Some of those numbers that were in the 40s in the past four weeks have gone up to the 50s. You can see we have some in the 70s. Every now and then we get a number of out-of-state death certificates. Uh, New Mexicans who've died in other states come in and those take much longer to come in. So those numbers, those numbers never go down in the pre, in the red box there, but they sometimes uh, ramp up just a little bit more. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, I want to talk about treatments. Some good news there on a number of fronts. We're headed back up again after a down week uh, last week that included the Thanksgiving weekend. We have a new uh, medication, Citrofimab, which has been already demonstrated to be effective against uh, the Omicron variant. So that's good news. And uh, nice solid uptake across the state of New Mexico with the use of all three agents. Uh, there's a little bit of a shortage of Regeneron. We can't get as much of that as we like. We got some extra Bam Eddy this week, uh, Bam Eddy being the uh, red bar on the bottom there. And 
Uh, sometimes the federal government has leftover supply that other states don't order, and we're moving very quickly to give monoclonal antibodies. Again, just a reminder for everyone watching, if you have a positive COVID test, you have symptoms of COVID, and you are either over 64 or obese or have any one of the many, many risk factors for more serious COVID disease, and, there, and there's like 30 of them, and some of them are simple things like high blood pressure and asthma and the like. Uh, if you fall into any of those categories, please seek out monoclonal antibody treatment immediately. There is a national website that I think we have a link to on the next page, uh, Brianna, and uh, I'm not on the next page, so keep that one there. I changed the order of the slides, but let's go to the next slide. Wanted to uh, mention uh, <clears throat> some of our top providers, some uh, familiar names here on the slides, uh, and uh, uh, Presbyterian still in the lead in giving monoclonal antibodies, Memorial Medical Center and Eastern New, Medical, New Mexico Medical Center, those two in uh, Las Cruces and Roswell uh, in the three-digit mark, San Juan Regional, close behind hospitals know that one way to keep people out of the hospital is to give monoclonal antibodies, and so they're vigorously giving those uh, drugs, and we really, really appreciate that. Also want to mention that we did some analysis in preparing for the oral drugs that I'm going to talk about in just a minute, and it turns out right now that Guadalupe County, little Guadalupe County, is giving uh, the highest number of doses of monoclonal antibodies per person, per population in the county. And so our hat is off to them. They're more than twice uh, the level of Quay County, which is next. And Quay is a, a, a county that's having a lot of cases right now as well. So we wanna thank every single provider who's been pushing and opening their doors and increasing the volume of monoclonal antibodies. They know, we know, you all now know that that will keep people out of the hospital. Next slide is uh, <clears throat> just that uh, website. You can go to this website and put in your zip code and it will tell you where monoclonal antibodies are available near you. Now let's go to the next slide uh, as well. And this talks about uh, molnupiravir. I'm getting better at saying it. Molnupiravir is an oral antiviral agent uh, that's been approved by the advisory group. And we think any day now this week, likely to be approved by the FDA with an emergency use authorization. We're used to that EUA term uh, by now. We only expect to get 400 treatment courses and we think we might get them uh, early next week or during that week. Uh, we're gonna start with a central pharmacy model with just one pharmacy distributing. Uh, this only works if you take it within five days of when your symptoms started and doctors and other providers will be asked to write the date that the symptoms started when sending in the prescription. And just so you know, uh, we're as we're prioritizing where to send these doses, uh, the first places we wanna send them are counties where you can't get monoclonal antibodies. And that list as of today in no particular order includes Valencia, Torrance, Hildago, uh, Mora, Katrin, Harding, Debaca, and Cibola. So we wanna first get these oral treatments to people who don't have access to monoclonal antibodies or 
reasonable access. But those counties have relatively small populations, uh, with the exception of Valencia and Cibola. And so we think that there may be more to extend to other counties. As the federal supply goes up, we expect two things. One is that it will become available statewide. And two, when we have sufficient supply, we expect that we'll probably no longer use monoclonal antibodies, except for in unusual or uh, specific situations, and that the oral drugs will take over as the mainstay for treatment of those who have symptoms with COVID. Still don't have the exact treatment guidelines yet. We'll get those when the FDA issues the emergency use authorization. But this is really exciting because it makes treatment for the virus uh, that much more accessible. I was uh, <clears throat> in a group, same group, there were a bunch of people took off their mask um, last week. And, and someone mentioned, you know, I think that, you know, coronavirus has just become the flu. It's just like getting the flu. Everybody's going to get it. It won't be a big, big deal. And while we all hope that that day will come when coronavirus becomes endemic and the disease is very mild, uh, I don't think we're there yet. And it's really, really important uh, to realize that your chances of dying from a coronavirus infection are about 12 times higher than the chances of dying uh, from an influenza infection. So we still need to take great care and particularly people at higher risk and older people, those death rates can be as high as 30% of people who get a coronavirus infection. Uh, and we also know that when you go in the hospital, people who are hospitalized have a, a chance of uh, dying actually in the hospital of 18%, which is very, very high for medical conditions in general. Okay, we're on the home stretch here. Brianna, next slide. Uh, I wanted to let you know, all my friends call me and say, hey, the Department of Health just sent me a notification that I have COVID. What am I supposed to do? And so the first couple of times I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. I said, now could you just take a screenshot on your phone, which on the iPhone is the top volume button and the, the other button on the other side. Take a screenshot and send it to me. And what is happening is people I know are getting these notifications from NM Notify. Now, we talked about this a couple months ago. I would love it, and it would really help New Mexico if everyone would actually put this app on their phone because it really makes it easier for people to be notified about potential exposures. It takes a lot of burden off of contact tracing. And frankly, there's no way we can do contact tracing effectively with a staff that's set up for 300 cases a day when we have 1,500 cases in a single day. And so the way this works is your phone communicates with other people's phones anonymously. And then if someone has a positive COVID test and they go into the app and enter that in, uh, that app will notify everybody whose phone was within six feet of another phone uh, within the previous 14 days. So number one, uh, it is DOH notifying you through this NM Notify app uh, that we do in conjunction with Google. Number two, you don't have COVID. You've been exposed. Well, what do you do if you uh, get one of these notifications? Uh, so let's go. Uh, 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 please go online and search for NM Notify if you don't already have it on your phone. I did that and then I found out when I searched for it that I already had it on my phone. Uh, this is, uh, so far, we have about 
uh, over a third of New Mexicans, 18 and over, uh, are already on this app. And so, um, if and so that's good. But if we can get that up to 70 percent, you could instantly be notified and take action. And the reason that's important is that, of course, if you're exposed to COVID, you're more likely to have gotten COVID. And if you're more likely to have gotten COVID, you're more likely to spread COVID. So, you know, when I'm in a room and people are taking off their masks, uh, the thing I the reason I keep my mask on indoors in indoor gatherings outside my home is because I'm worried that I might unknowingly infect someone else uh, with coronavirus. And so sort of that social responsibility for others. Uh, next slide just reminds us, here's what happens. If you get this message and this, these are what they look like. So we're giving you examples uh, about being exposed to coronavirus. If you get this message, please go get tested immediately. Um, and you know you can go to our website to schedule a test. You can call your provider. There are now test kits you can do in your home. If you go to get a test done and you have symptoms, uh, you should already be staying at home if you have symptoms. But if you uh, if your test is you know wait until those test results, stay home and isolate yourself until you get the test results. And of course, if it's positive, then you just do the remainder of your isolation. Uh, there were ten days from onset of symptoms. But we'd like to have more people do this. You can personally help the state with our contact tracing by doing this automated notification. I mean, this app, even though it doesn't keep track of anybody's phone or who the people are, keep uh, is able to actually keep track of that proximity to other people much better than we can if we're called by the contact tracer. Uh, we can't remember everyone. And in fact, as we might be standing too close to someone in the grocery store line for too long and not even know who they are. So help us out, go online, go to your app store, search on NM Notify, you'll find it, download it. And then of course, if you test positive, uh, the state doesn't do this for you. If you test positive, please go in and enter that positive test so those notifications can go out. All right, I think we've got one more slide. We got a lot of questions today um, and we'll deal with any of them that people want to bring up, but I wanted to cover all of them at once first. And the question goes something like this. Hey, how come New Mexico was number one in, and I'll just give you an example, vaccinating our population, but now we have one of the top five highest case counts in the country. And the, the asking of that question is called Simpson's paradox. And it's when you isolate two variables in an equation that have a lot more variables in there. And so I put up the Swiss cheese model uh, once again to remind us that how much distance we keep from people uh, makes a big difference. And in fact, New Mexico is back to exactly the level of contact and mobility that we were before the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, masks, uh, anyone who goes outside or goes inside somewhere else knows that not everybody's wearing masks, that's a variable. Keeping our hands clean, not coughing into the air, that's a variable. Uh, touching your face, uh, spending a long time in crowds can increase your risk. And then of course, state functions like uh, sensitive contact tracing, air filtration uh, in buildings, which is a private sector and state um, intervention, our messaging, messaging quarantine isolation, vaccines and boosters. And 
I think if Christine Ross, our state epidemiologist, had designed this graphic, she'd have six more slices of cheese in here labeled, we don't know yet. Uh, there's things we don't know yet that we haven't discovered yet about the virus, about the vaccines, about the treatments that um, will over time come to light and influence variables. And so um, the reason that New Mexico vaccinated all of our folks um, earliest and now has a very high case rate could be due to all of these things changing. It could be, be due to waning immunity from the initial vaccine series as we presented, but uh, it is gonna be the general construct for many of the questions that were asked today is, you know, and then the one I say not to uh, uh, talk down to any of these questions because they're all very legitimate questions, but I think uh, asking that question, how come we did so well with vaccines and now we have a case rate is kind of like me saying, you know, of all the people on this panel today, I have the fullest tank of gas and yet my car won't start. How is that possible? And that answer is more intuitive, right? It's because there's a whole lot of other things involved in starting your car, like having your key or, you know, the alternator working properly or, you know, the fuel pump working properly and I'm not a mechanic. And so I've already outdistanced my depth of oh, the battery being dead. And so, uh, you know, there's lots of other factors at play that get your car started. There are lots of factors, as you can see on this slide today, that protect us from coronavirus. And with that, I think we're gonna to go to the final slide. Just a reminder that the virus is out there. It continues to change. Please, if you were vaccinated fully before June 1st for Moderna or Pfizer, get your booster now. If you're vaccinated before, uh, I, sh I should have said June 7th earlier, or June 8th. If you're vaccinated before October 8th, with a single J and J shot, please get your booster now. And then let's all get treatment if you're eligible and have symptoms and watch out when you're indoors, keep that mask on. And, and as Dr. Richard said, and as I've said earlier, get needed healthcare. So with that, Matt, I think we're through it. And we're, we have time now for uh, questions. Wonderful, thanks so much. Um, so just a reminder for our regulars and um, um, a refresher for, for folks who are new. Um, we will go through as many rounds of questions as we need to to get all of the reporters' questions covered. So please raise your hand using the Zoom function, and uh, we'll call on you and um, and just ask one question at, at a time, if you will. And then, as I said, we'll circle through as many times as necessary to cover all your questions. Uh, I do notice that at least one reporter or one station appears to have signed on twice with the same reporter name. So that's a good reminder of when I call your name, please just identify yourself and your outlet all at the same time, so our principals know who they're talking to. And with that, uh, we will start with Julia Goldberg, followed by Stella Sun, followed by Andy Hay. Uh, Julia, you are unmuted. Please ask your question. Uh, thank you, Matt. I wanted to just follow up, Dr. Ross, with some of the um, information that you had on the case rate and test positivity rates. Are we not? Are we seeing yet the bounce from Thanksgiving? Because we're right at about two weeks now. So I wasn't sure if the surge last week or if that's even pinpointable. And then on the test positivity rate, I just wanted to check because I know increasing numbers of people who are using home tests, and I know that's kind of part of a, what maybe a national strategy is gonna look like. And I guess I wondered about if we think there's an effect already on test positivity and how that data will be 
I guess, adjusted as there are more home tests used. I know that sounded like two questions, Matt, but they're both from the same slide. So thank you. Oh, Go ahead, Christine. Oh, sorry. I was having a hard time getting myself off mute. Um, so I, I think we need to, to allow for a little bit more time uh, to ensure whether or not we've fully seen the impact of, of the recent holiday. That, that holiday period can be quite extended for some people. And we know that there was a really high uh, number of uh, people traveling uh, this, this Thanksgiving. So I'm sure that included a lot of New Mexicans as well. So I do think we need a little bit more time uh, to say uh, whether or not we've seen that full impact. And then I believe your second question was related to home tests. And I, I would say, you know, we are not asking for uh, reporting into the state of tests that are purchased over the counter and are, are performed in, in individuals' homes. So over the next few months, I believe um, the um, federal government has, has made a concerted effort to, to uh, work with companies so that there is an increasing availability of over-the-counter tests. I understand this is, is going to increase uh, just exponentially over the next few months. Um, there's also other programs that I believe President Biden is putting in place, such as making over-the-counter tests uh, reimbursable by your insurance. So in other words, we want people to use these tests. We want people to have really easy access to testing. And then we want to provide as much information uh, that we can on how they need to act upon that result. So we think we're going to we're going to see better impact on um, the, uh, the, the local uh, epidemic here if people have increasing uh, access to testing. And so over time, we're going to have to discuss, um, well, we are discussing it now, but will we continue to report out this test percent positivity? That number is going to become less relevant over time. It's more complicated and it may become less relevant over time when we're not capturing, if when we will certainly not be capturing a large number of tests that are going to be done in the community. So I hope that answered your question. And I think maybe David, you have. Yeah, just one tiny thing. I think maybe what would happen first is we'd raise our target level, you know, it, to be below 10 or, or something like that. I, I don't think we're going to do that when case counts are high. Remember, what freaks us out is not just the test positivity, but test positivity going up when case counts are high. And I'm hoping that nationally, as we roll out these uh, home testing kits, that there'll be some way of tracking at least the distribution of them. So we could we could have a general idea, uh, estimate uh, how many of these are floating around or how many tests are done in New Mexico. We'll never know for sure, but if we had a general idea, we could make an adjustment. So. I think we'll know that uh, or have a better idea um, early next year. And hopefully we'll see case counts come down at some point and then we can recalibrate. Thank you. Okay, great. Next we'll turn to uh, Stella Sun. And then I see a couple of folks appear to lower their hands. So, um, okay, Andy, yours is back up. So if, if, the way we typically do this for our press uh, guests is uh, please raise your hand until you're called on in the first round. After we've exhausted all the first round questions, 
I'll lower all the hands and then we'll, I'll ask you to raise them again if you'd like to, to ask a second question. Uh, but for now, I'll try to remember the order. Uh, we'll go with Stella next, and I think Andy may have been after that. Um, so Stella, you are unmuted. Good afternoon, doctors. Uh, thanks for taking my question. This is Stella Sun with KOAT. I was wondering if you could please tell us which hospital systems experience these 60 plus and 90 people waiting in queue just to get a bed. Uh, thanks, Stella. Great question. No. Uh, you know, we uh, part of the way we're able to get this information and take the pulse of the hospitals is for them to share somewhat confidentially uh, where they're at. But I think, number one, the larger the hospital, the more, you know, you have to have at least 60 emergency room beds to have 60 people waiting in the emergency room for admission. So uh, right now and, and for the last really three to four months, our biggest bottleneck um, on ICU admissions, hospital admissions has really been in the Albuquerque area. And that's all I can tell you. Okay, thank you. Uh, next, we'll turn to uh, Andy Hay, followed by Jared Ebenreck, followed by Patrick Lohman. Uh, Andy, you are unmuted. You may have to unmute yourself as well. Yeah, there you go. Um, Matt, thanks for that. Uh, thanks for your presentation today. Um, I'd just like to like look at it on a national level and then zoom into San Juan County. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Scrace, uh, New Mexico is, is doing well. It's amongst the top 15 in terms of full vaccination of, of residents, uh, but it's also uh, in the top five. You mentioned in terms of um, cases, uh, uh, case rate, you mentioned waning immunity as a factor. Uh, I wondered what other factors were putting New Mexico in the top five, and also uh, which other states were sort of in the same boat as New Mexico, if you saw any parallels, like with states like Vermont or New Hampshire, which were also first movers in terms of vaccination, and are now, uh, unfortunately, uh, like um, top of uh, the rankings in terms of case rates. Yeah, it's a great question. And also, thanks for sending that one in, in advance. So gives us a chance to debate it a little bit amongst ourselves, which uh, we almost never resolve. And so we continue to debate this question amongst ourselves in the press conference, which is good, because it means we've got a lot of opinions in the state that help make a, a better answer. You know, I think that we still think the fuel for this fire of our uh, case counts is unvaccinated individuals. There's no question that three out of every four are unvaccinated. And so and in, in a state where 75% um, <clears throat> of people are fully vaccinated, three out of four amongst the 25% is, is you know, higher than it looks at first blush. I think we do know that your chances of having a vaccine breakthrough infection if vaccinated prior to um, June 1st with Pfizer and Moderna uh, is four times higher than if you're vaccinated after June 1st. So we know that and we're pushing very, very hard uh, to get people their boosters. And we're hoping that even though we don't rely on press releases to make any decisions at all, we're really hoping that the Pfizer data that they released today uh, in a form of a press release bears out and that 
the booster shot provides 25 times the level of what they call protection than uh, the first two shots do. And, you know, there are other vaccines like hepatitis B that your panelists here today have all had because we're healthcare workers. And that's administered like an, you know, initial shot, one, one month later, one, five to six months later, uh, a sim, you know, it's a virus. Uh, so hopefully we'll get an extra boost here. I think uh, our mobility is back up to where it was before the pandemic. I think that's contributing. I think compliance with indoor mask rules is uh, low and has become political, which is rare, very unfortunate rather than, and I think there's a sense of personal freedom uh, that uh, folks may have that they feel is more important than the safety of the folks around them. I think though that uh, Andy, and I'm, I'm waiting, I'm gonna preempt Christine. I think I referred to the two slight, you know, the five slices of Swiss cheese about where we don't know. And I think a couple of the reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing, this, if you will, paradox is probably things we just don't know yet about the activity of the virus. You know, there's a big debate about seasonality and is it worse in the winter? And I gotta tell you, um, last year on December 9th, the hospitals told me it was the worst day in the history of their hospital. This year, they told me that on December 8th or 7th. So that gives me goosebumps. But we don't know enough to know whether seasonality is an issue here or not. So that's my sort of short list. Um, Christine, do you have anything to add or, or Laura to, to that equation? Um, I think you covered everything really well, but I, I would say also you, you, we have to be really careful when you take one snapshot in time, it doesn't really tell the whole story. Um, like I had mentioned, um, there, you know, there were other parts of the United States surging where we were still with very low level of activity. Um, uh, and I don't know that that's fully explainable why that surge would have taken off in, in Florida and other southern states, uh, while many of us were, were um, enjoying low levels of activity. And then now here we are. Um, so there is some question about uh, seasonality, but again, that continues to be quite questionable. Um, uh, but are, are we seeing people move more indoors? Uh, is that why Northeast, uh, Upper Midwest, and some places in, in, in the Four Corners are being hit hard right now? It's unclear. I think, um, David, you covered, there's, there's just, um, so many things that we still don't know, um, difficult to explain. But again, I would say you have to look at the whole picture over time um, and uh, where we sit uh, in comparison to other states uh, as far as uh, cumulative infection rates. And we, we still rank um, uh, pretty well there when you look over 50 states. Um, and so if we're in the top five now, I, I don't think overall, uh, again, overall, we're doing we're doing much, much better. Just one other thing I would mention is that social vulnerability, um, there's clearly groups of people that are more uh, vulnerable uh, to infection, hospitalization, and death. And this includes, uh, of course, we know that older individuals and individuals with multiple comorbidities, but then there's real racial, ethnic, 
disparities that we see as well and and how that is um playing out with this current surge it's a little difficult to say but i would just say that is one aspect uh, to keep in mind um, if someone is is quite wealthy and able to uh, isolate and uh, work from home and um, stay you know avoid crowds and 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 clo- you know closed uh, settings where they have to you know be around a lot of other people their risk of exposure is is much much lower and so there are certainly groups of people in the United States and here in New Mexico who who uh, tend to uh, um, have a uh, lower risk of, of infection, hospitalization, and death. And I don't know, uh, Laura, if you wanted to add anything onto that. No, I uh, no, I think what you guys said was was excellent. Yeah, I, I think we know what to do to prevent the spread. I think it's just sometimes hard to do it, you know. And um, I think it's a community thing that we just need to all figure out how we're going to live with this. And, and we will keep on seeing, you know, new variants, we'll keep on seeing COVID until we figure out a way to work together to prevent it. Thanks very much, everybody. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Potahon. Next, we'll turn to Jared Evanrek, followed by Patrick Lohman, followed by Chase Golightly. Jared, you are unmuted. All right, hopefully you can hear me. My name is uh, Jared Ebenreck. I'm with KUNM News. Um, I'm going to try to frame the question as simply as I can. Given the revenue streams that are proposed in the HB2 COVID-19 funds, given some of the other state budgets that are coming, and given 12% of the staffing is coming from nurse agencies and the numbers from the federal government are around 300 from what that slide I saw, just to set that stage, how much money is going to the traveling nurse market, to the traveling uh, healthcare worker market, and how does that compare to the state staff market? Um, hourly wages for comparable positions. Um, how are we addressing that tension in this bubble market uh, for travel nurses as the state uses that and hospitals use that to cover the staff shortages during the surge? and during the ongoing grind of the pandemic of two years. Thank you for your time and thank you for the work you do. Thanks, that's a great question. Uh, Sort of multifaceted, let me cover it in random order. Uh, Typically nurse salaries can vary, but I I tend to think of them in the $35 to $50 an hour range for an RN. Um, And uh, right now traveling nurses, we pay the company that brings them in. Uh, hospitals have seen those prices go up. They're paying $200 an hour. The state is paying 200 to 265, depending on the vendor we use for an RN per hour. Now, that not all of that money goes to the nurse, of course. And uh, I imagine at some point there might be a look into uh, the retained profits of these uh, recruiting agencies, but um, more of that money goes to the nurse uh, than our frontline nurses who live in New Mexico, who work in New Mexico, who are salaried by their hospitals. Um, you know, right now, the, the 227 folks we've brought in from out of state, that's through a state contract with uh, a vendor, uh, one vendor. 
We have a couple other vendors uh, signing contracts this week to get more nurses, as I mentioned. And those folks, uh, uh, and the money for that comes from uh, applications we put into FEMA, Federal Emergency Management uh, Group, to pay that higher cost to bring additional nurses in to take care of people. Well, of course, in the end, it's the U.S. taxpayer that pays that money to the federal government, which then gives it to FEMA, which then gives it back to New Mexico uh, to cover those costs. So that's the fundamental cash flow. Meanwhile, for the, the, uh, uh, in addition, you have all these private hospitals uh, that are uh, you know, using their own funds the best they can to hire these travelers. Uh, but unfortunately, and they came to us and said, look, they've just, we've been priced out of the market. We can't afford to pay these rates. And that's, and because of the shortages and because we don't have enough nurses to care for New Mexicans right now, uh, the state stepped in to get uh, more people. So I hope that covers the waterfront of your questions. Most hospitals have rules that to be a traveling nurse, you can't live in New Mexico. Uh, I know there are workarounds for that. Um, that some folks do um, by using a different mailing address. But it is not a good situation. I wish we could be paying our nurses more. And one last little thing, because I just looked this up, you know, if the legislature were to give us um, money to spend on health care instead of roads and bridges and libraries and things like that, uh, we could not match those dollars with the federal dollars through Medicaid like we can now. For every state dollar we spend in Medicaid, uh, we can get four federal dollars, but using the ARPA funding, that can't be matched. And so uh, we, we can't have that same level of advantage or take those monies and multiply them by four and pay higher hospital rates as much as we'd like to through Medicaid for our hospitals who are so hard up against it right now. So long answer to a kind of complicated question, but absolutely we would like to see our nurses be paid at those exact same levels. We've talked with FEMA about are there ways to do this, you know, to pay our own nurses more, but FEMA uses the prior to the pandemic period as a baseline. And so um, the answer from them so far has been no. Okay, Matt, back to you. Thank you much. Okay, next we'll turn to uh, Patrick Lohman, followed by Chase Golightly, followed by Ryan Botel. Patrick, you are unmuted. Hi, uh, thank you. I'm Patrick Loman with Source New Mexico. Uh, I just wonder, Dr. Scrace, if you could tell us more about this event where you were speaking and attendees took their masks off in a show of defiance. Yeah, you know, I think uh, this is not the first time it's happened to me. I think people may sort of see me as the embodiment of, you know, telling them to do things they don't want to do. Um, I've been in other events where as soon as I got up to speak, people took off their masks. And, and so it, it, this is one of a number of them. I think that uh, folks, sadly, in, in my opinion, think that there's some political meaning to wearing a mask or not. And it probably there is, actually. It's probably I just don't get it because they wouldn't do it if they weren't doing it for a purpose, people. And, you know, and I think they're wanting to say, we don't want government to tell us what to do. We want 
to exercise our personal freedoms. And so, I mean, I've, there's been a bunch of them. This just happened to be a recent one. You know, and there is a public health order requiring people to wear masks indoors when they're outside their homes. And so I, uh, but I think that, um, and I don't, I never know what to do. Like, I just, I don't know what to do. And one of them, you know, I couldn't figure out what to do because it was the first time it happened. I just sent him a letter later saying, I'm not coming back, you know, to talk like I do every single year, unless, you know, you can provide some guarantee that everyone will have a mask on. But I don't, I don't want to make it political either. And in a perfect world, uh, I wouldn't be, the, the antidote to me being the authority figure in the room that people want to make a political statement to would be that the people, the rest of the people in the room would say, hey, would you mind putting your mask on? Or I'm immunosuppressed. And, you know, or, I'm going to have to leave because people have their masks out. But, you know, this is new for us. In society, we don't really know how to handle it. In some places where people demand that other people wear their masks, they get shot. So we certainly don't want those kind of confrontations. So I'm just sort of slowly trying to work my way through the psychology of this and what the best way is to, to work it through and to meet the needs of the people in New Mexico uh, and be understanding. I think I've, I, I spent a lot of time over the summer becoming... Um, really adopting a completely non-judgmental attitude uh, toward those who made the decision not to get vaccines. And I think I made it. I'm still struggling with I, I, with folks who take off their masks just because I'm in the room. Thanks, Dr. Screese. Uh, next, we'll turn to Chase Golightly, followed by Ryan Botel, followed by Jackie Kent. Chase, you're unmuted. Hello, yes, this is Chase Golightly with KOB4. My question is for uh, Dr. Scrace, going back to that call that you had yesterday regarding the 65 people waiting for emergency room, I believe the other was 90. I know you say you can't say what hospital was at, and I understand, but my question is, is when you hear something like that, dozens of people waiting to go into the emergency room, I mean, first of all, what's your reaction? Is this something that we're seeing at other hospitals? And also, do we know, were those people able to get seen that day or with such a low number of bells, beds and so many people coming through, I mean, did some people have to go home and come back the next day? Yeah, it's a great question. And it kind of illustrates that I wasn't very clear about what I was describing. So I'm really glad you asked it so I can clarify. So the numbers I gave you are people already in emergency room beds who need to be in the hospital. They've been officially admitted to the hospital, but they're still taking up an emergency room bed because there's no room in the hospital. Now, the second part of your question is exactly right. And that is that um, uh, because of those people who are taking up those beds, the capacity of the ED goes down uh, anecdotally. And I don't have metrics for this, although if you approach the various hospitals, I'm sure they do. Um, they're left, there's something called LWBS, left without being seen. And I'm told by larger hospitals that those rates are the highest they've ever been, that they've ever seen. Uh, there are two solutions to that. One is don't go to the emergency room uh, if, you do, if you don't have an emergency, and we've already discussed that today. Second solution is if everyone got vaccinated, we wouldn't have any of these problems with hospital capacity uh, right now. And third is uh, for people to really realize that and understand that um, there will be weights that we're 
our hospitals are hard up against it. So, yeah, I panic. And, you know, we uh, we've heard I've heard reports. I don't have anything official about people who've died in emergency room waiting rooms over the past year. Um, and we don't want to see that those numbers, you know, we don't want to see that start happening again. And so I think it's a very, very serious issue. And the public can help by getting vaccinated, getting treatment if you have COVID and risk factors that mean you're eligible for MABs or, you know, in a couple of weeks for pills. And uh, and uh, I think that's our best angle at fixing this right now. But thanks for clarifying, because I was talking about people sitting in emergency room beds who've already been diagnosed. The doctor from upstairs has come down or and done the admission paperwork, put in the orders, but they're taking up an emergency room bed. And sometimes it's for days until a hospital bed opens up. Thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, next, we'll turn to Ryan Botel and Jackie Kent. And uh, I can see some, of, some are eager. If you've, if you've had your hand up and I've lowered it, please just keep it down so I can keep straight who's, who's still waiting for their chance to ask our first question. Uh, but I'll, I'll ask everybody to raise their hands again in just a moment. So for now, uh, Ryan, you're up. And then Jackie, you'll, you'll come just afterward. Hi, doctors. Thanks for your presentation. Um, Dr. Scrace, I wanted to clarify something. There are 687 ho COVID hospitalizations today. I think you started off by saying it was some sort of record, but then maybe that's been the highest number that we've had since January 1st. Um, I just wanted to kind of clarify what 687 COVID hospitalizations means like historically for New Mexico. And um, it, it, does the state, it, does the modeling suggest that New Mexico is going to surpass 2020 hospital COVID hospitalizations at some point? So great questions. Thanks for asking them. Uh, I, I did fumble around a little bit there. I apologize. What I meant to say was that we had the highest number of people in the hospital this year. And then it turned out it was really since January 2nd. It, it, in terms of COVID patients, we did have more COVID patients last year at this time than we have now. But despite that, the hospitals are much fuller than they were last year when they were completely full uh, because of all the additional people that have come in with delayed care. Like hospitals keep track of case mix index and all these statistics they have for how sick people are. Uh, typically complicated surgeries like bypass surgeries and things like that drive that number up. Most of these hospitals have actually canceled those surgeries or delayed them. And yet, despite that, they have the highest acuity level they've ever had. So how full the hospital is, higher than last year, how sick the people are, higher than last year. The actual number of COVID patients in the hospital right now, a little bit lower than last year. I think we hit a thousand almost for a day or two. So we're still lower than that, but hospitals are fuller people are sicker. And was Great. there another part of the question that I missed? Um, well, I, I was just wondering if, if um, I mean, you sort of answered it. I was kind of wondering if the state modeling suggests that New okay. Mexico at some point in this winter will ever come close to touching the COVID hospitalizations. Um, from I think we're modeling flat right now. <laughs> so, and, and number one, we can't really, we can see out about two weeks with the modeling, it gets fuzzier. After, at four, and then it's it's sort of a guess at six weeks. And also, uh, our modelers were uh, concerned um, 
at the meeting yesterday that we saw this big dip over Thanksgiving. Not, not sure if you all noticed it. It was in some of Christine's graphs, but less testing being done, less cases being reported. And whenever you have like a big giant divot or some aberrancy in the data, it also impairs our modeling for a couple of weeks until everything smooths out again. So uh, we believe we're flat for the next two weeks. Uh, we have our fingers crossed. Uh, we'd love to see it go down, but we know that's not gonna happen. And, and the main thing is that hospitalizations tend to follow cases by a couple of weeks. So, which I didn't get a chance to say this, but this is a good chance to sneak it in. All these rumors that Omicron, you know, causes less severe illness than the other variants, we're not actually believing any of that till we have three to four weeks of data because you wouldn't see those hospitalizations start to surge up until about two weeks after you saw the cases surge up. So we, I think it'll be around, oh, I don't know, maybe just before the winter holidays where we'll have, uh, uh, you know, or like, I don't know, third week of December where we'll start to see international data that would give us a better idea, maybe not even till early next year. So that's where we're at with that. But, uh, Right now, modeling flat with cautions expressed by the modelers because of that Thanksgiving divot that um, messes up their whole complex programs that predict the future. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, next we'll turn to Jackie Kent, followed by Jeffrey Plant. Jackie, you're unmuted. Maybe you need to unmute yourself, Jackie. There this we go. is actually Chris McKee here. Somehow uh, our wires get crossed on the uh, <laughs> on, a, on the uh, questions here. So anyway, sorry about that. Chris McKee here over at KRQE News 13. Uh, I was not expecting that. <laughs> so um, sorry for the delay. I did want to ask an update on contact tracing. I know, Dr. Scrace, you touched on it just a little bit uh, earlier on. I think you said there was maybe around 500 people, but I was curious if perhaps you could give me the idea of how many people are employed as contact tracers right now? Um, how quickly maybe are they getting to people? As I know, the dynamics of well of contact tracing have changed because I remember you saying right. weeks prior that, you know, people are out doing everything. So we're not doing quite the same type of tracing as we were in the past. So if perhaps you could give me some background on contact tracing, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to give you a summary and Christine oversees this area and she'll give you more details. So my summary that I've given in previous weeks still holds true that unlike April and May and June of 2020, when we call, you know, when people had the an average of 1.2 human contacts and it didn't like 2.2 places or something in that neighborhood. It really is the case that everyone is doing everything with everybody everywhere. And so it's just, you can't get through an interview. People can't remember. And that was really part of why I was pitching that we all sign up for NM Notify. So we could let an integrated, you know, web actually connect the dots and, and contact us. I think the other thing I said that is really true is that when, uh, you know, we staffed, we're staffed for maybe 300 cases, I think a day or something like that. Christine will know more accurately. But when you have five times as many cases as that, there's absolutely no possibility. So uh, we, we focus on the people, the cases we just got that day and do the best we can. 
to contact that a very, very high percent of people, a very, very high percent of people. I don't know this number either. Uh, already know they're positive because, you know, their doctor, their provider, whoever did the test is also responsible to the state to notify them of those those results. And, and often that notification is faster than the notification of telling the Department of Health that the test is positive. But so that's the broader review. And uh, Christine, uh, Dr. Ross, We'll color it between the lines now. Yeah, I think that we may have received uh, a series of questions on case investigation contact tracing that went to the the technical lead of that unit. So I'm not sure if those had come from you or someone else, but she's actually working on pulling all the specific numbers to the specific questions. And I don't know that I have them at my fingertips, um, but I think what... Um, David is alluding there uh, is absolutely accurate. Uh, with with numbers over a thousand consistently for for, for days, um, it is uh, just not possible to touch every case, and then becomes even more difficult uh, to to touch every contact. And so I think what we are seeing, and what many other states are seeing, is that over time. Um, we've really had to look at the model uh, of case investigation contact tracing and um, see where we get the most bang for the buck. And what we're finding is over time, um, there's fewer people that, that want to talk to the state. More and more people have the information that they need. So we've pushed out so much information on websites, town halls, you know, all sorts of different ways that I, I think when people get their positive result, um, they they manage that personally between themselves and 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 their provider, and they don't want us uh, in the middle there uh, anymore. <laughs> so. Um, we're finding that true also with um, the number of people who want to provide names of contacts. That's also decreasing over time. People are saying, I'm going to manage that or uh, I don't have any contacts, um, which is probably not not true in many scenarios. They probably do have some close contacts, but they're they're choosing to manage that themselves. So happy to get get you updated numbers on that. Um, Chris on, on um, uh, the numbers in the unit currently. I will say that we did, um, we've recently um, uh, added some additional staff members through a cooperative agreement with CDC Foundation. Um, we decided to, to supplement staff, but again, with these numbers, it's been very, very difficult and, and basically impossible to keep up with these numbers. And so our staff are absolutely fantastic. And the people that they do reach, they're very, very happy uh, to, to get that one-on-one -on -one contact. So the people that do decide to pick up the phone, they're, they're happy uh, to, to get the call for the most part. And um, we're able to link people to services. We talk to them about monoclonal antibodies and, and try to make sure that uh, if they're not doing well, um, encourage them to, to you know, reach out to their provider or even call 911. Um, but let me pause there and see if that that got at what you were asking or go ahead, David. Yeah, Christine, I thought of one more thing. You and I met with uh, Catherine Callow-Huser last week, who's really fantastic and runs the contact tracing unit. And 
we've been working really hard on trying to automate many of these functions so that right when the case comes in, generally, not always, generally it has a phone number on it. Often, not always, that phone number is a smartphone. We're auto-generating texts to people to notify them that they're positive, officially from the Department of Health. And we're expanding that effort to give them links to, uh, you know, if you're symptomatic, click here to, you know, uh, see if you're eligible for monoclonal antibodies or, you know, other options as well. You know, click here to fill out your own contact tracing survey online uh, to, to fill in some of those data points. So that I think is going to be part of the new, I think the NM Connect app, I think the automated notification and providing people with resources will be another big arm in the evolution of contact tracing. And then lastly, for those people who uh, just have a regular old phone at home, I mean, we'll still maintain our efforts, but I think I think the automation really is the only way to ride this roller coaster of case counts. Uh, you just can't manage a business where you have to call, you know, 300 people a day or, you know, 100 people a day for a month and then 1,500 people a day for a month and then 600 people a day for a month. And so we're hoping that automation, uh, Chris, will be the mainstay of how we do this. We've had good success with that in Medicaid enrollment and some other things like that. So we're wanting to take advantage of that as much as possible. And again, a pitch for every New Mexican to sign up for New Mexico Connect and you all can help with that as well. I know there'll be some people that don't like the idea of the anonymous sharing of their data and that's totally fine. But if we could get you know, 70%, twice the number of people we have right now, that would have, make a huge impact and notify us all much earlier of those exposures so we can go get tested immediately. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Next, I'm going to turn to Jeffrey Plant, and then that'll bring, I think, our first round of questions to a close. And Jeffrey, you are unmuted. Thank you, Matt. Jeffrey Plant with the Silver City Daily Press. Yes, yeah, just questions, but they haven't been very good right Earlier, you said uh, New Mexico is back to the exact same level of contact. Yeah, right, just a moment. Yeah, Jeffrey, just wait there. one second. Patrick Lohman, would you mind putting yourself on mute? Can we get stop in another TV? Because they usually get two hearings. I will take care of that myself then. All right. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Scrace, you said that uh, New Mexico is back to the exact same level of contact, uh, social interaction, I guess you meant, that we were at before the beginning of the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that is that based more on anecdotal evidence or is it uh, you know, data like like phone data? Uh, great question. Sorry, I didn't. I wasn't more specific about that. You might remember like a year of press conferences where I showed that mobility data graph, and we had all these versions of it with public health orders and how they affected mobility and letting public health orders expire and how mobility went back up. But I'm really talking about cell phone data. We don't monitor it every day or by county anymore. Uh, actually, Lanel has picked up. Uh, we we canceled our contract. Last summer, Lionel has picked it up, but it, it turns out it's still a good surrogate for human human contact. I think that we do have data from contact tracing. You know, we didn't do contact tracing before the pandemic, so we don't have any data about how many contacts people had or how many places they went. But I think the huge uptick in number of contacts, number of locations people have visited, sort of confirms that as well. And then I think anybody who dropped 
including me today, I drove up to DOH and, you know, that this is purely anecdotal, but I think probably everyone else on the road, you know, even at what time was that? Even at 630 in the morning, I-25 North, it was really, really busy. Uh, not like it was um, going backwards to March 20th, but exactly like it was uh, before that March 12th, sorry, exactly like, like it was before March 12th, 2020. So I think uh, most of our lived experience confirms that you go somewhere like Home Depot, just as crowded as it was two years ago, uh, and much, much more crowded than it was a year ago. Okay, Thanks. thank you very much. Um, with that, I think we can open up uh, round two. So if you'd like to ask another question, please raise your hand at this time. And uh, I'll start with uh, Julia once again, then Andy Hay, then Ryan Botel, and I'll stay on the alert for additional hands. Um, Julia, you are unmuted. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask about something you haven't, we haven't really talked about. I had seen, uh, I think it was a preprint from South Africa that was looking at whether Omicron was more likely to reinfect people and had just seen a, I think it was a study, Dr. Ross, on the CDC site out of Kentucky about reinfection being uh, two something times higher for people who are unvaccinated. And I went back and looked at all 1500 data points, Dr. Space. I don't think we have data on that. And I guess I just, we've never talked about it. So I was kind of curious why that reinfection issue had come up and if, if New Mexico did have data or know anything about um, whether that was happening here. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, someone asked this last week too about reinfection rates. We didn't have the data at our fingertips, but today our state epidemiologist does. So Christine. Sure. Um, well, I wanted to, you talked about a few different things. And I, I think the preprint that you're talking about out of South Africa, I think I'm familiar with that. And, and I, I believe, um, you know, the take home messages, you know, in South Africa, I think the, the vaccination coverage is only about 25%. But when they look at, um, uh, there's, when they look at serology or, or antibody, um, uh, uh, response, um, there, it indicates that actually there's been a high level of natural infection uh, in the population. Um, I've heard, I believe, up to 60 to 80 percent even um, uh, from this serology data. And so what they're seeing is people with evidence of prior infection uh, are being reinfected uh, with this new um, variant of concern. So that was one of the uh, I think that's one of the pieces of information that came out of South Africa, which um, uh, raised uh, some alarm bells. But what's really different there is is our vaccination coverage is 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 different. Um, I think for the reinfection numbers, I, I had it ready and now I have to pull it up again. Um, but I believe we had reported out that um, reinfections are included in our case count. Uh, so those are because what we're reporting out are are newly reported infections. And so if you meet the definition definition of a reinfection, then you are going to be included in our case counts. And I want to say that number is uh, here it is. We have a total of four thousand one hundred and twenty eight. Um, 
that we have been able to identify through uh, surveillance uh, data. And through uh, September 1st, uh, there's been 2,140. And then I don't know if there was another part of uh, the question as well. I think that covered it, thank you. Great, okay, next we'll turn to uh, Andy Hay, followed by Ryan Botel. Andy, you are unmuted. Thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, just zooming in on uh, San Miguel, um, sorry, not San Miguel, San Juan County. Um, last time I looked, it had a higher level of complete vaccination of residents than the state. Um, and yet it has um, very high case rates, as you um pointed out in your presentation, very high ICU capacity. Um, so clearly there's, there's something else going on in that county other than vaccination. And I'd be very grateful for any insights uh, from three doctors on what may be driving things in San Juan. Uh, you know, I can start again. And uh, I haven't been to San Juan County lately. Uh, Dr. Ross here has, so I'll let her mainly answer. But um, no matter what, how we break down anything, you can go to the county level, you can go to the zip code level, uh, you can go to the census tract level. It's never homogenous. It's never a set of people who are exactly alike. So in San Juan County, you have the tribes, a high percent of people in uh the Navajo Nation, other tribes, very high vaccination rates. You've got zip codes with very low vaccination rates. Again, in the, like, like the state, probably the answer to, for San Juan is very similar. Uh, the, the case rates there being so high. And actually, as uh, Dr. Ross mentioned, they're coming down now uh, in the Northwest somewhat, but those case rates being so high are driven um, to the vast, vast majority amongst unvaccinated people. And so uh, we don't know the magic number or uh, percentage that develops herd immunity. We've kind of given up on that idea. We would, we're waiting for more for COVID to become endemic. Uh, we know there's a clue in boosters and the timing of boosters and we're working really hard on that. But Christine, anything else to add? No, I, I think you covered that really well. It's when you, when you, you know, when you, you drill down from aggregate numbers and you start to look at lower and lower levels, um, as, as David just alluded to, you see that there's a lot of differences. And so um, uh, you uh, cited a specific, um, you know, a, a vaccine coverage number for the, the county as a whole. But when you start drilling down, you see that there's pockets of susceptible people, whether it's uh, geographically um, or whether it's by race, ethnicity, um, you can look at it in different ways. Um, but there's definitely uh, lots of fuel uh, for for this uh, Delta surge, uh, and and again, primarily it is unvaccinated um, individuals. Uh, I did have the opportunity a few weeks ago uh, to to meet the staff at San Juan Regional Medical Center, who are just absolutely extraordinary and um you know was able to walk through the ICU and the emergency room and and just talk to them about really just uh 
uh, offer them some support because um, they they felt like they had uh, pushed out as much information as they could about uh, ways to prevent uh, COVID-19 and 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 to um, you know, reduce uh, a person's personal level of risk and exposure. And uh, they, uh, but they, yet they continue to see people coming into the hospital. And uh, of course we do have vaccine breakthrough cases that um, uh, unfortunately end up hospitalized. Some some uh, even have died, but again, overwhelmingly it, it is, it, it's, it's pockets of unvaccinated people. And uh, the Delta variant is just extraordinary in its uh, capability to seek out those vulnerable pockets of people. Um, and, and that's why we keep coming back week after, after week, I think, saying uh, the same thing. Uh, but it continues to hold true. Um, and there isn't a smoking gun or something different happening. It's, it's hard for people to, to really um, sometimes, um, you know, really understand at this point in time, we're still dealing with the same thing. And we have rises and fall, you know, peaks and valleys of, of, of disease activity. But... We, we still are dealing with Delta, uh, which we've been dealing with uh, since July. Thanks, Dr. Ross. And just really quickly, following up on something you said before about in rural areas, you know, people are not working from home, so they have to get up, they have to go to work, they have to be around more people. Do you see, you know, when, when you, you're looking at other states and what your counterparts in other states are dealing with, do you see patterns across the United States of like this rural-urban divide where you got counties like San Juan, K, uh, that are, are just in, in, in the, 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 the very deep red, um, and, and then urban pockets like Santa Fe, uh, you know, and Bernalillo counties, which are doing much better. Is that, is that something that we, is sort of nationwide trend that you uh, spotted early? So I think the the urban rural question is a really uh, interesting one, and oh boy, that's not something that I've looked at across the nation uh, in some time. Um, I, I do think that overall, probably nationally, we know that that folks residing in rural areas um, uh, don't fare as well uh, for a number of reasons um, uh, um, uh, with um, access to healthcare and etc. Um, but I think what you're getting at is is a, an interesting point, and I, I don't know if it holds true across the whole nation, but I do think it's it's something really relevant, uh, which is you know if you can sit at home and telework and and keep uh, keep yourself. Uh, um, your level of personal risk very low because you don't you keep your number of exposures very low uh then uh obviously those folks tend to do much much uh uh, better uh, as compared to someone who uh, is perhaps an essential worker, has to go into a restaurant, um, work in an area very closely, densely um, surrounded by other people. And um, uh, it can be a very different level of risk and exposure. Thank you. Okay, uh, next, I believe we have Ryan Botel. Uh, with his hand raised and beyond that i don't see any additional hands so um julie i'll check back in with you because i'm not sure if you're still got your hand up from the previous question or you're looking to add another one uh but beyond that we might be heading to the close uh ryan you're unmuted please feel free to ask your question 
Thanks again. Thanks for taking another question. Um, er earlier in the conference, um, uh, there was a mention of four FEMA mobile vaccination clinics coming to the state in the coming weeks. Um, and I was just wondering if you can share more details about what areas of the state there that is going to target and, uh, and and how successful do you think that they will be? Is, is, is it really an access versus ideology question at this point when it comes to, to vaccinating people? Um, thank you. Great, um, I can take this one. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, one of the ways I think that's part of the work that we've been trying to do to improve access for vaccination. So we had an initial um, FEMA mobile team in June and July, well, from April to, to June. And we had really good uptake because we placed it in areas of high social vulnerability in Albuquerque. And um, we also have, uh, you know, on the website, you can look for get um, signing up for a mobile vaccine event. So that methodology of really, you know, reaching out to community organizations, letting churches, you know, different communities know that we can send you a mobile team um, is really helping us with getting doses to places where traditionally people have difficulty getting doses. So we're having one of those buses in each of the regions. And so there's four regions, there'll be one bus in each region. And then we're working with our community partners, with our public health office, with all our partners in those areas to um, actually place the, the, uh, the buses in locations where um, people can get easier access to the vaccine. So that's really part of our strategy to reach out and, and you know, push, and, um, push equity in places that we normally don't have um, access, yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna add, Laura, one of the things I like about these press conferences is it gives me a chance to tell Laura and Christine stuff I haven't had time to tell them <laughs> before, uh, but uh, maybe not the best venue, but. Uh, it's of interest to everybody, so I'll say it. Uh, Secretary Hotram Lopez, who was on a recent uh, press conference with us from Aging, and I have been talking. And Laura, one thing that could be great is in some of these rural areas, they're so small, they don't even have nursing homes, but they do have a, assisted living facilities. If we could have the mobile buses sort of stop by and run in and uh, you know, provide booster shots for that those vulnerable populations. That would be really great too. So we can follow up on that more, but that's another uh, way that we can use these resources in hard to get to areas to serve, you know, some of our more vulnerable people in in congregate care settings. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Okay, Matt. Thanks everybody. Uh, uh, that's the end of round two. Now's a good moment. If you'd like to ask a third question, please raise your hand. I'll just give it a few seconds here. Okay, um, it's four o'clock, so I think we'll call that a day. Uh, I'll turn it to uh, Dr. Ross, then Dr. Potahon, then Dr. Scrace for any final words. Or, um, well, forgive me for sounding like a broken record, but um, I, I just want to say I, I'm, I am so amazed at the uh, vaccines that we have. They are so incredibly safe and effective. Uh, they are remarkable. Are they 100% perfect? No, but they are absolutely uh, remarkable. Um, and one thing that I failed to mention uh, before is when we were talking about what, well, what could possibly be, be new, and I just want to reemphasize um, David's point about 
um, waning immunity and that we know over time this is going to become a bigger issue. And so please, please, if you are eligible, I would seek out an appointment and, and, and get yourself uh, boosted. And again, this doesn't mean that the vaccines are failing in any way. Um, uh, we are learning as we go, and, and we may certainly find out that this is a three-series a shot, or three series uh, vaccination series. Um, and uh, we may even perfect the timing of that second and third shot over time. So this does not mean they aren't working uh, uh, and they continue to be uh, your, your best protection uh, against um, the, the Delta variant. So I'm gonna end there. <laughs> I'll let you go, Laura. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much. Well, once again, thanks to all of you for all you're doing. And I also want to like take the opportunity to thank our providers out there in our own public health office. We were doing about 25,000 doses a week um, in September. Now we're doing 85,000 doses a week. So a lot more doses out there. Thanks everyone for getting the vaccine. And I really do think misinformation is one of our biggest, you know, threats to you know, to the whole pandemic. And so just encouraging everybody, you know, to continue to reach out and listen and empathize to people who are concerned about getting the vaccine. It is safe, it's free, it's uh, no cost to you, you know, and just trying to get out there and, and we'll continue looking for ways to, to break down barriers to keep on helping people to get access to the vaccine. And yeah, and continue the little Swiss cheese piece of doing all the different things we can do to prevent COVID. So thanks so much for having us. Yeah, I, I want to just close too by thanking some people we don't take anywhere near enough time to thank. First, everybody who works in public health, and that's not just in the Department of Health, but cities, counties, have public health divisions, and everybody's been working overtime everyone who works in a hospital. And I'm even talking about accountants and and others, particularly our frontline people who are providing patient care, but our delivery system is maximally stressed right now. And I just, it's really just very touching to see people's dedication, to see Dr. Richards take time out from, you know, running what he's running to step in and explain to us what's really happening to the emergency room doctors and nurses and techs and front desk clerks who deal with angry people who are mad about having to wait um, to, you know, all those folks that all these hospitals are calling in from their outpatient practices to take care of COVID patients in the hospital. I mean, that's a frightening thing. If you haven't practiced in a hospital for 20 years to go back, I'm kind of hoping that UNM doesn't call my number on this one myself, but um, every single person who's stepping up to do the right thing. And I think they just make a wonderful example for all of us who struggle to do things like, you know, every time I get out of the car and get, you know, 15 feet away and realize I don't have my mask on and walk back for every time I do that, I know there's thousands of people who do that every day. Thank you for going back to your car and getting your mask. Thank you for keeping your mask on. Thank you for respecting the rights and valuing the rights of those around you more than you value your own rights 
in in a time like this in a pandemic like this and uh you know every single person uh in this in new mexico has done something to help us really battle this pandemic and i just want to thank every single person who has done that and uh and thank all those people i just thanked we don't do it enough uh, we should do it more and you all be safe too you know thanks to parents we're thanks to the kids for getting the boosters thanks to their parents too for driving him and getting him in there. Uh, thanks to everybody who's already gotten a booster. And thanks to all of you who are listening who are due for one. Please go online right now and schedule one. Get that set up today. Uh, that will help protect you and our community as well. And until we see you next time, uh, be safe. And do all those things you know you need to do. That big, sli all those slices of Swiss cheese to keep you, your family, and your community safe. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.